we are live. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I am not Katie, I'm Vicky. Oh, why do you mess? Don't mess with the norm. I'm like, who am I now? Right, I'm Katie. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to another episode. If you haven't joined us before, please do check out our previous episodes. But what Strong Tea is all about is talking about the topics that we feel we need to learn more about things that we think people should be talking more about and definitely not burying in their heads in the sand over. We need to talk about the topics that people consider taboo or controversial and just opening up to make things more accessible to talk to and with each other about more easily. Today is no exception because we have a wonderful guest, Brett, with us. But before we introduce Brett, we always find out what we're drinking. So... Brett, what are you drinking in your amazing Alice in Wonderland cup? So I am drinking a cup of, I think it's banana tea. I had a little bit of a mix-up because I was originally going to put mugwort in it, but um, that herb's very much associated with astral travel. And the last thing I want to do is projecting myself out there during a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so it's a, a black tea mixed with banana. Banana. Okay, I've got a real issue with banana, so that's not really doing it for me right now. But is this this is a tea that you've made yourself? This is not like a a herbal blend or anything. This is literally black tea with banana. Yeah, so um, usually I'll dry the banana out because I have um, one of them drying racks, and I'll put it into the tea, shred it up a little bit. It has a beautiful um, flavour to it. Very sweet oh, if, if you like bananas. That's <laughs> impressive, isn't it? A drying rack with it. I don't know. Yeah. Even though it's banana and I'm not down with that, I, <laughs> I implore your efforts for the tea making. Absolutely. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> I, I don't think we've had, I mean, we've had tea mixologists on here, but I don't think we've ever met someone quite as passionate to own their own drying rack. And Yeah, I love it. I, it's my dehydrator. I, I, I'm always foraging for items outdoors that I can dry from little oranges you can use for decoration at Christmas. Yeah, yeah I'm quite hands on that way, but that's the only thing I'm technical with when it comes to computers or anything like that I'm quite inept (laughs) yeah but to be honest if I was stranded in the woods or an island you'd be the person I want to be stranded with not an IT guy where do do you know what I mean if we're talking survival (laughs) oh thank you (laughs) yeah do you have like one of those little books that tells you the things that you can and can't eat outside yeah so usually I was um taught by my grandparents what certain foods we could and couldn't forage and my partner as well he has he's of German descent and his uh, father grew up in I think it was eastern Germany and he was taught how to forage as well, especially around mushrooms. So we like to relate our information to each other. And um, mm-hmm. we go out at certain times of the year to pick certain things. So September time is great for mushrooms. Uh, February time is great for harvesting um, syrup from the birch trees. So it's, it's oh, really good hobby to have. <laughs> oh, my God. This is this could be a whole episode in itself. Yeah. Foraging. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. What are you drinking, Katie? Um, I have gone for... A slightly controversial one for me, because you know how I feel about green tea, but I have gone for a bird and blend and it's called a mojiti. So like mojito, but it's mojiti. And it's a soup, apparently, I haven't tried it yet. It's a super refreshing blend of green tea, peppermint and lime. Oh, nice. Yeah. Peppermint, Chinese chunmi green tea, lime leaves, lemongrass and lemon peel. So... I think I've overbrewed it, but I'm going to try it in a bit and tell you how I feel about it. So with with a uh, Highland Spring water chaser, obviously. Well, obs. Uh, What are you drinking? Bog standard peppermint tea. 
you can't beat it. Sometimes you, you just need to refresh and yeah, peppermint Cleanse. is always my go-to. Cleanse, mm. yeah. Nice. Absolutely. Cleanse. Yeah. It's always a nice refreshing one, that, isn't it? I enjoy that. Always helps me after I've eaten a big meal. Yeah. It's kind of like one of those um things that you don't want to tell anyone about in case it stops working. Cause for me, that's my miracle cure. Like I've I've suffered with IBS for years and I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna have a peppermint tea after I've eaten because I feel really bloated and ick. And mm. I have it and I'm like, oh, it's gone away. Don't tell anyone though, because in case it stops working, in case it's magic. Absolutely. Which is a fantastic <laughs> segue, actually into today so I get the wonderful job of um, introducing our fantastic guests for the day and as a lot of you know when we are looking for guests um, or guests contact us we do research into them we find out what they're interested in and we do uh, an initial chat with them now I found Brett on Twitter and instantly just became absorbed in Brett's Twitter feed because you cannot help but be swept up in the things that Brett does and I'm gonna let Brett tell you the story but um, Brett is based in Wrexham he is a practicing folk witch he's an aspiring author he's a tea leaf reader he's a pole dancer I could go on the list seems endless a forager we'll miss that on out <laughs> um is there anything you can't do Brett um so <laughs> as we're going to be talking all about uh, witchcraft, folklore, fairies, all sorts of wonderful things today. Um, so, Brett, tell us your story. Tell us how you got into being a practicing folk witch. Well, oh, thank you so much for that marvelous introduction. That was wonderful. So, yeah, so my name is Brett. I am a practicing folk witch. Um, so, a lot of people might not know what a folk witch is, or if they're aware of the flourishing traditions that are growing in our world today, they might recognize what it is but not necessarily the, the intricacies of it so folk which uh the path that i practice is intrinsically tied to my cultural experience so i was born in shrewsbury shropshire but i grew up as a borderlands child separate my time between shropshire and in powys wales so i consider myself a welsh marches folk witch more of a borderland witch and in that time, I like to investigate and study and inspire others by teaching about my folklore, my regional practices, customs, traditions, lineage and ancestry. And all of this constitutes the foundation of my practice. So um, I endeavoured down this path when, well, broader witchcraft speaking, I endeavoured down this path when I was about 13 years old. Um, I was brought up in quite a spiritual household. I think if people might remember, my, uh, there was a magazine many, many years ago that was called Mind, Body and Spirit. My mom was absolutely obsessed with them. And I remember reading and thinking, wow, this is magical. It's enchanting. And I remember finding a book in a shop that was called uh, Wicca, Beginner's Guide. Uh, for those of, you who, those of you who do not know what Wicca is, it is a, uh, a pagan religion that emphasizes reverence for nature and has a dualistic based faith where they worship a god and goddess. That's the summary of it. there are many different subsects of that tradition and I practiced it for many years trying to read and study it for what it was how to do it and although it was wonderful it didn't quite fulfill my spiritual need it didn't quite fit with what I believe so as years on I went on and off practicing witchcraft and I later met Mara Starling who is my high priestess of our coven the Starfest Goch which is the coven of the red serpent and she wrote a book called Welsh Witchcraft a guide to the spirits land and law and I remember reading it and there were certain things in that book that stuck out to me. And I was like, wow, we have this where I grew up. This is amazing. And it wasn't just the sensationalized depictions of magic that you see in Hollywood. This was things that your granny would tell you, certain trees that you should avoid picking or bringing into the home, certain ways to prepare bread or certain protective charms you can carry on you. 
And growing up on the borderlands, we were infatuated with our stories because in that region, specifically in Shropshire and in Montgomeryshire, we have a huge amount of hill forts, hills, um, natural features in our rural landscape that are tied to folk stories, such as Gwendo Rikin Apshenkanaf Miramaur, which is a giant of the Rikin Hill. We have Havren or Sabrina, who is the goddess of the River Severn. And we have all these beautiful folk tales that I didn't realise that growing up and hearing as a child, I could actively incorporate them into my practice. And so I investigated into the history of Shropshire and Montgomeryshire and how they were once part of one land, part of Wales, before the introduction of the conquest. And I learned all about the traditions that were associated with the land. And then, yeah, in my spare time, I also teach pole dance because I am very heretical. I love to pole dance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like to teach people as well how to pole dance because I think it's a wonderful way for people to get fit and to really embrace their body because all bodies are beautiful. And then when I'm not doing that in my spare time, I'm either crying my eyes out watching the old black and white films like Wolverine Heights or I'm crocheting. In fact, I've got one of my little crochet creations here, my little mandrake, (laughs) keeping me company. So yeah, that's, that's basically a little summary of who I am. Oh my God, your talents know no ends, Brad. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit. You talked about Wicca and you talked about the uh, origins of, you know, how folklore and those stories have helped um, inspire you uh, in your current practice. But what is a witch? Where does it come from? Mm. And why has this stereotype overtaken everything that you've just said, which sounds very earthy, natural, powerful, you know, beautiful. So take take us back. Mm. Yeah, so popular culture today is really infatuated by witchcraft. And I don't think we'll ever be able to completely separate the stigmatization that's attached to such a title. Um, in basic terms, really, the word witch originates from an old English word. So there's, there's a subsection of actually those. Um, I think it was pronounced witcher for a male practitioner or witch or witcher, which was a female. So we have the root in that word, which I think relates to the word bewitched. Um, so a majority of the time, the stereotype revolves around the negative connotations att- attached to women. So witches were perceived to be uh, elderly women who were not less to be seen in a really good light, to be fair. But that has developed for years and years and years of oral and cultural transmission, how ideas were amalgamated together. And so to really break it down, we have to travel back to the Middle Ages, which is where in the 13th century, the church really started uh, catching on to the activities of witches and how it presented a threat to Christendom. But when we extract the idea of the word of witch, we have to go back to the word magic and magic has been practiced throughout generations of culture. And you'll find like the early traditions in that in the Mediterranean culture, where magic was a part of everyone's life. So the word magic came from the Greek magos or magos, I might be pronouncing that wrong. And this was linked to um, Persian priests, but it was never seen in a very good light. See, it's really difficult to distinguish what was magical and what was ritualistic in the Greek times. Obviously they had a pantheon and the same with the Romans as well. They had a pantheon of polytheism where they worship multiple gods. And we see in some of their rituals and their rites that when we look at it from our perspective, these are quite magical. So how can we separate that from what magic is in terms of negative connotations? And they agreed on anything that affects the status quo can be seen as uh, bad magic, basically. So 
those who practiced bad magic were seen as selfish, going against the conformity of the natural state, especially in Rome. They were characterized by going to dark, liminal places like graveyards and contacting cophonic deities in order to cause harm or for selfish needs. And really, they should have been directing their veneration towards the gods. And there are many different examples of this used within the Roman and in the uh, Greek world. Eventually, it left the Persian stereotype and just got attached to those who did practice magic. And... Um, it was more attached to things like uh, cursing traditions. So we have cursing tablets where people would write their votive offerings on a piece of lead, scroll up and throw it down a well or hide it in some other place. And we still have that in Wales today. We have in the traditions of magic going back into the 16th, 17th century and further on, we have people who have been putting people's names in wells for ages. <laughs> we also have things like poisons, ritual incantations, puppet magic, crafting these little dolls and uh, using sympathetic magic to work magic on another person but then if we fast forward to the middle age that's when we really start to see magic being included and i think it's really important when we're breaking down the stereotype of a witch we have to go through different segments of what constitutes a witch so uh, the one of the first ones that comes to mind is that witches fly on broomsticks <laughs> so where that came from uh not properly like we can't be very sure there's always nuance in these topics but where we see a prominent example of this was in writing trying to dissuade people that witches weren't a thing they weren't necessarily real they were just illusions um and this comes from regino uh regino de plume i think it was who wrote the canon episcopi which was a passage in common law and it was said within the folk belief that um certainly women were seduced by the devil and were granted these illustrious illusions that they, that they could fly out of their bodies into the night sky to form a nocturnal uh, retinue. And they were led by this goddess and she, her name was uh, Diana, who comes from the Roman pantheon, who was the goddess of the moon. But this was nothing more than just, like I said, illusions granted by the devil. And then later on, writers started to add to this, such as Bucard of Worms, who said that the figure wasn't necessarily just Diana. It was Herodias. It was Holler or Frau Holler from the German tradition. And later on, we find out in years ago, as the popular belief starts to develop, we find in the trial records uh, people flying. Not necessarily how people would see witches flying on Bruce today in sensationalised telly, but it was in a very different, more gruesome manner. So we see artwork of people, not just flying on broomsticks, we, we see them flying on uh, animals, goats, bedpans, anything they could get their hands on, really. But we see in the trial record that how they did it was they mixed a concoction together of poisonous herbs, such as belladonna, um, deadly nightshade, and they mix this with soot and the fat that was collected from children. And what they would do, they would rub it together in an ointment and they would anoint themselves in personal places such as the privates, in the armpits, their staff or their stang. And this would create a hallucinogenic response, almost similar to like an out-of-body experience. And then later on, we have the, the idea of the witch flying on the broomstick. And then we have other stereotypes of the witch uh, seen more based around gender. So I think it's not quite accurate, but around the estimate is, um, I think it was about 70% of women were the main predominant victims of the witch trials, unless it was in certain countries such as Normandy and Finland, where the majority was actually male. But there was quite a drastic um, direction focus on women and how they were caught up in this. And a lot of it comes from the demonologists at the time who were writing that women were inferior, both physically, intellectually and spiritually, and therefore they were more susceptible to the, the devil and any other kind of attachment to the more nocturnal side of things. And that they were perceived as weak and therefore by going to the devil and renouncing their Christian faith, they could bring a war upon Christendom, representing the reversal of what conformity would have them do in the Christian society. 
Um, so yes, yeah, so that was mo- mostly produced things from like the Mal- uh, Malice Maleficarum, who was rich, uh, written by Heinrich Kramer. And in that book, which was spread across Europe, um, there are some really horrible, horrible accounts on how certain people were punished and tortured in order to grant these confessions. Uh, and we have other writings as well, such as in our region, we have like the King James uh, version of the demonology, as he wrote how to identify witches, trying to prove that these were actually real things and they represented a very drastic threat towards society because of their malicious intentions. Um, in the trial records, they don't unanimously depict witches as elderly because we have to, we often see the crone-like attachment to witches. But if we go across different geographical regions, the age range differs, it really does. Um, what we may perceive as old was different back then. They uh, they had maybe 40-year-old women who would have been perceived as old, uh, considering the different stereotypes at the time. But um, a lot of the connotation attached to it, we find in writing such as... Uh, Reginald Scott, who wrote The Discovery of Witchcraft, who again tried to disprove this was nothing more than just fantasy, and that if people did believe in witches, they were going against the idea of God, that power could exist outside of his creation, and they were idolaters. And in that, he does mention the stereotype of elderly women. And it's interesting because when we look at the history of it, women, elderly women specifically, were more likely to go towards uh, cunning practices or magical arts in order to try and make a living, especially if they were more poverty-stricken. But... um, so yeah, the attachment was there, but it was also uh, attached to their role in society. It, it was almost seen as if they fulfilled their purpose. It was quite misogynistic in such a patriarchal society. And they had fulfilled their purposes and, you know, some of them lay on the outskirts of society. And therefore you have that attachment that witches were associated with those who resided on the periphery of society. Um, and then, of course, we have the attachment to antisocial negative behaviour. So a lot of people believe that in the witch trials, the people who were persecuted, mainly women, these were healers or midwives. It's not quite accurate, really. Um, they constitute a very small, small minority, almost. In fact, the many people who were persecuted were not witches at all. They were just people who caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, they were Christian. And a lot of reasons people say why this happened as multitude you can't really say there's one specific reason because there's so much some argue it was the rise of capitalism so stripped away land rights and common land pushing people who are already at the low uh, parts of society downwards into poverty and you'll find a lot how which accusations come about from people who are begging around doors and they maybe they're refused and they mutter something and eventually the person who refused them falls sick or their animals die and therefore that attachment's attached there. We also find arguments made between both women and women, women and men, who make these malicious accusations against each other in order to defame them. So yeah, there's quite a few <laughs> different reasons there. Um, and of course, the stereotypes surrounding the hat, no one really quite knows where that comes from, but the pointed hat, it's rooted in different theories. Some say it was rooted in anti-Semitism against uh, Jewish people who wore a certain type of hat and that image got attached. Uh, some attached to Quakers, even though they didn't even wear pointed hat, this association is still there. And interestingly, there's some theory who say that it was taken from the Welsh tradition, with the long hat that they wore. <laughs> and then we have the stereotype that witches cast spells, but I'll talk a little bit about that later, because um, I know a few things we want to talk about comes later on in our chat. <laughs> I am absolutely fascinated by this, because it is something that, you know, you reference paganism there, and you've talked a lot about the different um forms of witchcraft and following different different sort of roots and beliefs obviously 
a lot of people listening to this might be quite new to the concept of witchcraft, not in the sense that, you know, they've probably seen the craft, they've probably seen Hocus Pocus, Bewitched, Harry Potter, and more mm. recently, um, Coven with American Horror Story. You know, all of these are very stereotyped depictions regarding what you've just mentioned there. Yeah. So people probably have quite a skewed view compared to what it actually is. So tell us a little bit about how you as a witch actually practice, because, you know, some people might imagine you, um, and we can tell you from actually seeing Brett here, he's not sat in a pointy witch and a big, <laughs> a pointy hat and a big black no, cloak. No, in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, just explain a little bit about what that means for you in terms of how you practice your beliefs. Yeah, so I think... My view is my own. If you asked other different witches uh, what their practice is, you'll get a huge, diverse range of answers. So I can only really answer myself. But as a practicing folk witch, the emphasis is on the connection with nature. So in my particular practice, I believe in animism, which is the inherent belief that everything in our world is imbued with a spirit. Everything is alive. And when you walk into a forest, you can feel that beautiful hum when you stick your feet into the ground that filters in between the sounds of nature itself and that stillness it's in between the liminal that you can feel yourself that you are one part of nature um in the practical more operative side of things with my craft i do practice magic so in the most basic terms i can describe magic other people have different ways of that i see it as the direct manipulation of energy our world is composed of energy and i believe that we are all interconnected in a almost like a web and when we attach ourselves and assimilate ourselves into that web, we can pluck these threads in order to enact out change in our lives. I believe that everything on the outside of us is almost in, inwardly related to us as well. And it's not very hard to find that. Like, I remember reading an article ages ago that it really inspired me actually about hydrogen bonding that happens in water molecules and how it gives water these functions. And yet the same thing happens within our DNA strands. We are part of nature as much as nature is a part of us. And in my magic, I venerate that. I go out into these natural spaces and I, a lot of people think, oh, I have to go out, to, I go out into nature and I'll dance around a tree naked or go sacrifice, you know, babies to the devil. I, I only do that on Saturday, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I go out and I explore nature. I connect. I, I have such a deep respect and reverence for everything that's around me. And yeah, I work to change what I don't feel satisfying in my life, as well as in a wider perspective of things. I um, venerate the goddess Havrin, who is the goddess of the River Seven. And in the ancient Celtic times, although they didn't attach the name Havrin to that river, you can see in archaeological records that they were given these uh, ritualistic tools as offerings to the river that were never used in war. And we see that this belief is transverse through time that, you know, natural places have this semblance of the other attached to it. And so I will utilize that in my craft to work magic, to change things, whether it be to protect my household, protect those who I love, um, heal myself when I'm feeling sick or heal others, or in most extreme precautions, <laughs> practice cursing if I have to. Um, and the ways I do that, I look to the folklore and how things have been written by people within my region and how they attach certain correspondences to plants. So I'll work with the spirit of the plants. A lot of people think that magic comes from within the witch, and to a sense that is true, but I believe that there is a supernatural element to it, that I have to petition the spirits out there to listen to me and to help me to work with me. And in that working relationship, we build sacred recipro uh, reciprocity with them and how our work is so much enchanted and we don't take notice of it because things like capitalism, consumerism, industrialization, we've kind of lost that attachment. 
And although I don't claim to practice something that's old, the old ways, because that's not quite what it is, it's looking to the past to be inspired and therefore reconstruct something that is modern. And uh, being a folk witch, that comes from my folklore in Shropshire and Wales. And a lot of people think that magic is attached to, you know, the most beautiful ritualistic items that you can buy from a shop, such as, you know, the pointy knives that you see or uh, the fanciest cauldron. And sometimes that can, ha- that can help. You know, they, they are tools that we can use. But that's not everything that can use in magic. It can be such mundane things that people would consider trivial. It's language. You'll find a lot in uh, old spells that nothing was really used sometimes. It, all that was needed was the voice, because we ourselves are storytellers. There's so much that can save in language, our words, especially in the Bardic tradition in Wales, which goes back centuries. They had the power to raise a king or destroy it with their words by singing off their reputation. And our words carry power. And we see, especially in Shropshire folklore as well, witches who come to the fields to try and glean for corn or other types of grain and they're refused and all they have to say is you know i curse you and that power that emotion we weave words together and it's often said our words do have power they can really hurt people and i know that in the older generations it's like oh sticks and stones can break our bones words can never hurt us but they, they can they really can because they can affect us deeply and that kind of weaves into the magic that i practice as well i like to write uh, poetry which is basically spell work <laughs> But I also use other different terms as well. So I'll create charms that I will hang around my house. Um, I'll also practice not magic. So not magic is a form of magic where it was in folklore belief that if you tie knots in a certain amount of times, you could constrain the weather or wind. You'll find sailors going to these wise women who would constrain the wind and the knots given to these sailors. And when they were flying out, well, say flying, sailing out on sea, they would unrelease the knot to usher in the wind. And a lot of people today don't utilize that. That's just one underused practice, but we do have it. If, for example, crochet and knitting, when you create something like that, this is why I talk about mundane things. When you create something that's crochet for someone or you create a handmade item that um, doesn't necessarily relate to knitting or anything, it could be anything, you're imbuing that with the spirit. It is powerful. It is alive almost. And that it is full, filled with your soul, your ambition, your love, your dedication to it. And it is inherently magical. A lot of people like to claim that I'm just romanticizing life, but what, what's wrong with that? Because the way I see it, the fact that we're here spinning on a rock in the middle of a vast universe, that's magical. Definitely. <laughs> oh my so God. that's I... a very kind of summary of my practice, really. It's, it's really hard to uh, pick it apart a little bit. It just comes a little bit natural to because I've been practicing for many years now. But yeah, that's basically where I can summarize it, really. I am so into this. <laughs> I am just... I'm hanging on every word. This is oh, yeah. This no, it's it's fascinating, and I, I so get it. It's like that that power that mm. when you're making something for someone, and you, you do because it's not just the thought behind it. It's you feel that energy going into it as well. Mm. And yeah, I totally that yeah, that's lovely. Can you give us an example of the type of charms that you make? So give us actually, you know, an example of or spells or however far you want to go. Not necessarily cursing if you, if you don't want to go there. No, I That's don't mind. Kind of secret. Yeah. <laughs> no, I see. So yeah, it really depends on my intention, really, what I want to do. So um, I know in the New Age or Neo-Pagan worlds, a lot of it comes from manifestation. But in my way, that doesn't quite work because um, manifestation to me is just... It's just maybe one ingredient. I, I can manifest a cake, but unless I go out and actually do the work, get the ingredients and put them all together with my intention of making that cake, it won't come to fruition. So when I do charms and spells, I I do use physical properties, and a lot of them come from the correspondences I attach from my ancestry or my home lineage folklore. 
Um, folklore forms a lot of the foundation of my practice, which I'll look to these stories. And one of them that you'll find that's quite prevalent is protection magic for the home. So one of the items, this is going to sound so disgusting, so PG warning here. <laughs> one of the items that was used to protect the home from malicious entities such as witches or demons, or from any kind of curse that was coming upon your home, or any evil doing that was casting from the evil eye, was called a witch bottle. So a witch bottle was created, and I created in the same way, where you'd gather a bottle and you would fill it with items that are attached to you, such as nails, hair, and you'd put inside of it nails, bent pins, all nasty sorts of stuff, including urine. <laughs> and this was believed to keep witches at bay, and this was buried within the threshold of a house or kept in a dark crevice. And it was seen that if a witch or someone evil wanted to cast something upon you, the energy would be directed to that bottle almost, and sometimes it would kill the person. <laughs> Not that like, it would kill, I don't know if someone's die from the results of my magic <laughs> i hope not but um that's one way i also use rowan so rowan is a tree that grows in the british isles and it is throughout many folklore around the region it's associated with protection it's said to avert the fair folk who came into the home and a lot of people think the fairies are these little whimsical creatures like tinkerbell but they're really really not they are quite um ambivalent towards human nature and so a lot of people would create these rowan charms by getting two sticks placing them together inside of a cross and sometimes binding them with red thread or even using rowan berries and they'd be hanging in the corners of the house or the door so quite, I, I often feel sorry for my landlord who comes into my house sometimes because he'll see animal bones and i'll see rowan charms and witch porcelain dolls hanging from my ceiling god knows i must traumatize the poor guy <laughs> um other spells that i do so um if I, I do a lot of divination actually as well. So that helps to gain insight and introspection. So one of the ways I do actually is tea. <laughs> so tea is quite prevalent within a folk witch's practice. A lot of divination is actually, some people like to use tarot. I use tea because it's the best way to do it, I think. I, I, I think it's wonderful. You get a nice drink out of it. And that was brought over in the 17th century by uh, Dutch traders. And although the tea was associated with the higher class people, it eventually suffused into modern belief because back in the day people in them days did have ideas of divination but they used more dangerous terms such as like um lead they use lead and wax and so in like the victorian age the idea of divination and the ideas of the occult grew in popularity and this mixed together with the development of psychoanalytical theories and people wanted to know about themselves and so they would use tea they would hold tea parlors and eventually the tea drinking itself divination was associated with the romani travelers who would go from door to door and in my tradition in Shropshire, Montgomery, it is said that um, when you drink a cup of tea, if you take the leftover loose leaf and you burn it along with any dust in your household, it was supposed to procure good luck for the house or good finances. So I do tea leaf divination. I will mix the herbs together and I'll often include it with onions as well. So onions have been used in folk magic for quite a while. They've been used in divination by people putting them under their pillows and sleeping on a certain saint's night. So I think it's St. Martin in order to bring dreams of a future lover. Other times they're associated with abundance because of how rapid they grow. And so I'll take the onion skin and I'll combine it with the herbs and I'll burn it with my intention and my fruition to bring about good luck for me and prosperity to my household. So there's just a few ideas. Cursing. So a lot of people have a hang up with cursing because um, people who come into witchcraft, sometimes more often than other, their first introduction to it is Wicca. And the Wiccan rule, as many people believe, is do no harm, or if you do, it'll come back to you times three, which I see is more of a, excuse the language, a bastardization, a westernized bastardization of Eastern philosophy, because not quite how karma works. And I see it more as a Christian hang up of idealism that there's some God out there who is watching over our every move. But when you look at folklore, 
witches, anyone, even cunning folk, used cursing to get things done. And they had to, it was part of their need. And we see that in this. And I think it shouldn't be seen as a tool necessarily for harm. Like, not, I'm not saying everyone out there should go out and curse whoever because someone looked at you funny or, you know, Becky down the road, you know, has been slandering you. <laughs> but um, it can be seen as a really powerful, liberating item. So the beauty of today is that the witch stereotype has changed and that it is seen as a liberating title reclaimed by those who feel empowered. And you'll see that there are a lot of marginalized marginalized communities that gather under the title of witch or pagan or spiritual. There'll be women, LGBTQI plus individuals, people of color, people with uh, disabilities, all these people who have been trodden under or vilified by society like to come to these spaces. And I see it as a way to enact out their personal sovereignty, their power. And one of my favorite stories, actually, or my book, should I say, it's been written, was called Aradia or Aradia, The Gospel of Witches, which was written by, um, oh, I can't remember his name. I think it's Godfrey Ley- Leyland, I think it is. And he wrote in that tradition, in the Italian tradition, that uh, witches were granted their power by Aradia, who was the daughter of Diana and Lucifer. And she gave the magic of how to cast magic in order to fight against their persecutors, those who oppress them. And I see that in this day. In this day and age, even though we're living in the 21st century and a lot of things have changed for the good, there's so much work still can be done. And sometimes we need to protect ourselves. And that's why I see cursing it as a way for us to reclaim that power to fight those who seek to hurt us. And so in the cursing tradition, a lot of it does revolve around poppet magic. So poppets, people think they're like voodoo dolls. Voodoo is a closed tradition. I don't touch that. We have the idea of the poppet, which is very similar, but different, in which corresponds to sympathetic magic, which means you fashion an item in the likeness of someone in the effect that if you cast some kind of magic onto that, it'll affect the person in real life. It creates that symbolical link. And so a poppet will be created. And there's different ways you can do this in my practice. I like to do salt dough, which is combining flour and salt and a little bit of water and molding it. Usually back in the day, it'd be used with clay, but you'd go down to the riverbanks and you'd mold it together. And sometimes um, a lot of people like to use pins, but there's all different ways you can do that. You can use the doll by combining baneful herbs with it. So in my tradition, um, Certain baneful herbs can be like the foxglove because it is poisonous. I don't recommend anyone touch that plant unless you're medically, um, well, herbally trained, let's say. But combine it with that dog if I want to enact out some kind of harm. Or in my folklore, well, I don't particularly do this, but there are different ways and more ways I'm glad have not necessarily picked up popularity. So in cursing tradition, sometimes they would take an animal heart and stab it with pins, bind it and hang it in a chimney and, and as it rots and it um, decreases in size, so will the person. And that's actually found in protection magic as well. You'll find um, the use of skulls, horse skulls in particular, buried within the threshold, acting as a protective guardian over the household. Or in some cases, actually, there was, a, there was a cat found in Ludlow, a dried mummified cat that was placed in the walls, thankfully after postpartum um, or postmortem, one of the words, I can't remember which one it is. And this was seen as a spiritual protector that would use be used as a um, an alarm system almost. So if a witch or their familiar spirit wanted to come and attack the household, the cat spirit would fight against it. So there's a lot of things I do incorporate into my practice in my folklore, but some things I don't because oftentimes you'll find, especially in healing traditions, it can be quite cruel sometimes or quite disgusting, <laughs> but sometimes the needs call for it. <laughs> I, I can just see that Vicky is just, I mean, it's like she's absorbing herself into the screen to get closer <laughs> to you to uh, understand this more. I'm fascinated to know what sort of feedback you get about this. And I, I know you've obviously talked about the fact that you're part of a coven. Yes. And that 
um you obviously surround yourself with people who are like-minded but what how how do other people respond to this are people a bit freaked out by it are people generally understanding are people sort of fascinated and want to know more oh it's a bit of a mixed bag right depending on who you speak to so sometimes uh there'll be that instant <gasps> you're a witch oh my god can you curse this person for me or can you do me a free reading can you do a spell for me and it can take a mix sometimes, but I'll be like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. But uh, other times there'll be the disbelief that people see it as just fantasy or role playing or romanticization of something that's not real. And I don't pay attention to them people usually because if, if I ask to prove it to them, like, you know, ask, give me some of your hair. They'll be like, oh, no, I, I don't believe in that. Really? Then give me your hair. <laughs> but a lot of the times especially in our day and age, because there is a rise in paganism and spiritual beliefs. Funny enough, in the latest census that came out, I think it was in 2021, there is a decrease in Christianity. It's no longer the dominant religion of the UK. I think it's in the 40% now. But there is a steady increase of people are becoming more aligned with these beliefs. And they want to learn more. They want to learn not necessarily just about witchcraft and magic, but their own, their own folkloric traditions, their own foundations, where they come from when it comes to ancestry lineage. And that's one of the things I try and demystify about my practice. It's not just all about casting spells and speaking to spirits. It is just the mundane things that we've left die in our tradition. Certain things that I love to revive back and tell people about their home that may not seem witchcraft adjacent, but they are. They they very much are. Um, a lot of the times as well, they'll look at me and one of the biggest stereotypes is that, oh, witches are women. That's not quite accurate because, as I said before, men were witches. They were classed as witches in the witch trials and they were persecuted as well. Um a lot of people say, oh, you're not a witch, you're a warlock or you're a wizard. No, the, the word warlock is more of a derogatory term. That means an oath breaker. Some people like to reclaim that as a more empowering term. They can do that. Absolutely no problem. But for me, myself, to call myself a witch, I think almost pays homage to the people that did lose their lives in the witch trials. It pays homage to my land and the spirits I have a good relationship with. Like I said before, even in the witch trials, they weren't witches, but if you see in their trials, you see these semblances of belief bleed through of the wider community. And to reclaim that now, to take away the power of people saying that evil are just these horrible old uh, women or people in general, it's, it is beautiful. It's beautiful to see that the practice of witchcraft is flourishing and there's new knowledge being uncovered every day within different counties or regions that are coming together to celebrate. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it just reminds us how intrinsic our nature is to nature and how we are all connected and almost in a way I when people find out I'm a witch when I tell them about this they feel this sense of harmony that they want to go into so they're like oh my god I want to find out this because it does it relates you to the past almost into the present you're speaking and you're reading of the words from your ancestors those who have died long before us but when you act actively, actively enter into the space they are here with you it is that connection to something that's beyond us to that thing that doesn't necessarily judge us from up high or persecute us because we're not following a certain rule or because we're born differently, but we're here because we're free and we can learn to love one another and to live in harmony, hopefully anyway. <laughs> but yeah, that's when, when people, when people ask me and they, I tell them all, which most of the time it is shock, but thankfully there are people out there who are so much more understanding and more receptive to wanting to learn more. I just love how, you, I mean, you use the word freeing and so on. It just feels like such an inclusive, beautiful, natural mm. um, thing to be a part of. Oh, and is, I yeah. love how you're revisiting the past by bringing it now to the future in your current practices with the folklore. It's it's a wonderful thing. And like you said, people, it will resonate with people and mean a lot to them in terms of yeah. that human connection as well as nature connection with nature. 
You mentioned before about the cunning folk. Now, obviously, you talked previously about the connotations of witches with the old crone, you know, being evil and so on. Cunning folk, you mentioned about the spells and cursing there. Yes. And I read a book about cunning folk and was absolutely terrified. So can you tell <laughs> us more about cunning folk and are they around? Mm. So cunning folk straddle a very intermediary space in witchcraft practices. So to talk about cunning folk, I kind of have to dive into the idea of Maleficium, which is the ability to enact out harm. So in England, Wales, Scotland, across the British Isles really, and across Europe, um, magic was prevalent. People did believe in it, or there were some that were sceptical and didn't want to believe in it, and they tried to dis, uh, disprove it through theological debates and philosophical debates. But in England and Wales, the idea of the witch was treated ambiguously, with ambiguity, should I say, that there wasn't a complete census as to what a witch was, especially in England and Wales, because especially in Wales, because there's, there's different linguistic terms that were used to define someone. The witch didn't even enter into their language until later on when the English trial records started being bled, bled through. Um, but like I said, they had different judicial processes as well in England and Wales. So the Act of Union that was enacted by Henry VIII combined England and Wales together, and that use the establishment of the quarter sessions but in these quarter sessions we had a system that was accusatory using common law and that meant that we had to have a strong amount of evidence for someone to be brought to trial which is quite expensive and half the time they were acquitted but compared to europe who was already on their onslaught of witches they had an inquisitorial uh judicial system in which witchcraft or witches were assimilated with the ideas of heresy and apostasy and we have this idea bleeding through of the demonic witch, which was someone who renounced their faith in Christianity and they would fly off in part of a congregation together to meet with the devil in these secret places known as the witch's Sabbath. And there they would feast and engage in orgiastic revelry and also enact out malicious enchantments, kill children and feast on cannibalism and all sorts of horrible, horrible things like that. In fact, you'll find, funny enough, you'll find things that in order to renounce their, their Christian ways, they'd have to kiss the devil's ass crack. <laughs> But naturally. yeah, how, yeah, wow. yeah, naturally, naturally, yeah. I mean, Lucifer, oh, the devil hasn't quite come to me to ask me of that yet. But when he does, I'll be ready for him. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we have the, this idea of the demonic witch, and especially in Germany, well, Germany and France, they were quite present with this idea. But this idea of the Sabbath and the demonic witch never quite settled in to the trial records in England and Wales. It did in Scotland, however. Scotland was horrific in their persecution of witches, absolutely horrific. But, and so they were in England and Wales, like just because our numbers are small around in the 400 to 500 region, just because they were small doesn't mean they were less prolific, but I'm just saying that they were less intense compared to other places. So it never quite stood out here. And like the Sabbath really didn't enter into the trial records to the 16th century. And even then it was very minuscule. In fact, some of the first references to it was the Malkin Tower meeting of the Pendle witches. And even that's been argued and disputed that that, that was really just a Catholic meeting because during them days, that it was a time of the Reformation. And people believed that when England split away from the Roman Catholic Church, this unleashed an unholy horde of demons and God and the devil were no longer omnipotent in the sky. They were in the streets battling for the attainment of your soul. And so there was this set, not necessarily a hysteria. So a lot of people like to call the witch trials a craze or a hysteria. It's not quite accurate because in them days, it was a very strong intellectual belief. It made sense to them. So, but in this region particularly, the idea of the demonic witch didn't happen really. There were witches and they were believed to practice Maleficium, which was the ability to enact out harm. But they didn't need to go up to these Sabbath meetings. That entered later on into folklore after the witch trials ended. 
But then in the midst of all this, you had the cunning folk. So cunning folk have often been referred to in our day and age as white witches. I don't quite like that dichotomy of colour between white, good and black, bad, because there's a lot of race connotations there that I won't delve into. But they were seen as magical practitioners who were benevolent and beneficial to the community and often based their work upon a trade or a profession. Um, I say beneficial, they did have the power to enact out malefic forms of magic. So they were they, they shadowed a grey area, but they're often conflated with charmers, wise women, wise men. There's different names for depending on which region you're in. Like uh, in Wales, they have different terms that kind of relate to the same thing. Who practice Soin Gavadith, which is charm making almost. So you have a Soiner, which is a male charmer. Soin Raig, which is a female charmer. Um, and then in, in Shropshire particularly, you'll have cunning folk in the north, but wise folk in the south, different names. And so they were mostly ascribed to the ability to help those who were bewitched. So they would come and help those who'd seek out their help in order to take curses off. So they were seen as direct opposition to witches. They gave um, protection magic out. They helped un uh, discover uh, hidden treasure. They divinated. A lot of the time they are conflated with uh, other types of magical practitioners. So you have things like charmers, healers, conjurers, necromancers. Um, and sometimes there is overlap between them. Like a lot of them are brought in together but when, when we say wise folk or uh, cunning folk with healer they use herbs specifically herbs more in a magical way rather than a medicinal way in, in the way healers do and then sometimes you'll find that they use the grim warwick tradition which is where they'll take page pages or inserts from certain books that have been popular at the time that contained ritual incantations um and certain spells to petition spirits so cunning folk are usually described as, as performing what we call low or popular magic which is uh, residing within the collective community response and pass through oral tradition this is what we're seeing as a low magic or just simplistic magic needs to get it done operative and then you had some magical sorcerers or practitioners that practice high magic and that was more ceremonial it was more complex and used very expensive ingredients and very ritualistic ideas of drawing uh, different symbols on the floor and invoking these demons or angels or spirits but a lot of the time these pass through and they merge together into the cunning folk practice so you'll see in the cunning folk tradition that um you'll have someone who will employ a cunning folk to come and help take a curse off and all they have to do is put their hand upon this person or sometimes they'll fast and take the spit from their mouth and place it upon the person and they'll incite an incantation but what's interesting is this incantation was not pagan so it's really interesting to point out that in the medieval ages leading up into the early modern period and into the 19th 20th century these weren't pagan they were heavily christianized practices because the dominant religion at the time and belief was christian but they took a subsect of it they I suppose in a way they were seen as blasphemous because they took the Bible and used it in their magic. You'll see a lot of the Psalms as well, and especially in magic, I'll use the Psalms both in healing and in cursing. And so they would take the spit and they place it on a person, recite a Psalm or create what we call a historiola, which is creating a story. So a certain example, not off word by word, but they'd be like the Virgin Mary dropped a child or she burned a child and she petitioned the angel to come down and heal it. And by the power of Christ, you are healed in the name of our Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that would su suffice to be enough to heal. Other times there would, there would be more um, grimoire traditions using pages from books or they would use herbs and use certain items such as um, sometimes divining rods where they'll go out and seek out sources of water or hidden treasure. And some remarks, they were seen it through negative eyes as well a lot of times they were assimilated in the witch trials because they were accused sometimes like if their practices went wrong 
they were seen, okay, that's a witch. In fact, in a large theological discussion, they were seen as even worse than witches because they pranced around behind a false pretense of beneficial magic. But in any way, they were a direct opposition to God. A lot of the beliefs in that time as well focus around that God was persecuting people, the community, bringing about these witches to enact out his punishment for people who weren't pious enough. And so witchcraft inflicted upon these people was seen as a way to repent, to bring themselves back to God. And cunning folks stood in the way of that because they stood, they took the bewitchment off, they removed the lesson. And so it was really important for cunning folk to gather that reputation, to try and build that community report because they were less likely to be accused. And so a lot of people would actually go, they would travel distances. They've traveled far and wide to go to these cunning folk. Um, in our region here in Shropshire, Montgomeryshire, where a very famous one was Dick Spot the Conjurer, who was called that because of um, a birthmark upon his face. And he's been reputed to be known <laughs> as a I wasn't expecting folk. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there are there are quite a few. There are quite a few. One of the most favorite favorite tales I like to tell. So she can be described as a cunning person or a wise woman, but she is seen these days as a witch. And that was Nanny Morgan or Anne Williams. And she lived in much Wenlock in Shropshire. Um, and she grew up as a very beautiful young woman who fell into a wrong crowd and she got eventually arrested for stealing clothes. And when she was released, she was found to be turned away from the whole community because no one wanted to harbour a delinquent youth. And so she ran away to join a traveling community and that's where she learned the tricks of the trade. And when she resettled back into her, her home, a lot of the people, maids, women, men of both lower and higher social class came to her to have these readings, to have love charms and love potions given to them. And she was quite a staple person in that community. You know, there was fear surrounding her. Um, she was staple in that until there was an argument between her and her logical William. A lot of people suspect that they were in a relationship that was quite a toxic, abusive relationship. And there was a quite an age uh, disparity between them both with Nanny Morgan being older. And he eventually stabbed her in the face because he believed that she was bewitching him. And the only way to escape that was to kill her. And the story goes actually that he was sentenced to transport. But before he reached his destination, the, the ship sank. And people believe that that was Nanny Morgan coming from beyond the grave to curse him, basically, <laughs> to get his comeuppance. Um, and it's really interesting. One thing I want to point out as well is that in England and Wales, well, I say England more so, the idea of the devil was there, but it was different. So we have what's known as the familiar spirit. So witches, even cunning folk as well, entered into this relationship with a spirit, almost called a demon, who would assume, it was more of a spiritual incorporeal entity, but people like to write in folklore that it assumed the form of a cat, a dog, a toad, a mole, or an insect, which is why you're seeing today's depiction of witches with their cats. And it comes from the idea of the familiar spirit, which, which it, when a witch became a witch, she'd be granted a familiar spirit to do her bidding or his bidding. And in exchange for enacting out the, the bidding of the witch, this familiar spirit would feed upon them on what's known as the witch's mark or the witch's teat. This was seen as a mole or an extra nipple, a birthmark, a blemish, in which the familiar would suckle upon the witch for blood or milk. And that is seen as, as a perverse uh, reversal of what the maternal image of a, of a woman is. So like I said, it's, it was more attached to women, which was seen to be the reverse. So in the modern age, obviously, a lot of the focus was attached to motherhood. But witches, because they went against that, they were seen as feeding this demon spirit as a sort of renouncement of what was seen as traditional in a women's role. In the cunning folk tradition, they had the same thing. But when you look interestingly into this, it wasn't just a familiar spirit. This familiar spirit was often amalgamated and demonized, villainized as the fairy. So we have quite a few fairy traditions in this region in which practitioners would go to these fair folk who were 
seen as either denizens of the other world who inhabited our world as well as theirs. And they would act with these fairies to help with their spells and their magic. And that later became, you know, the familiar spirit. It depends what you believe. There's no quite pinpointing what became what. So one of my favourite tales, actually, of a familiar spirit happens to be with Nanny Morgan. because She had a familiar spirit in, in the form of a toad called Dew. She kept a box of them. But there was one specific one that would whisper to her secrets in her ear while she kissed it. And one of the ways in which you gain a familiar, actually, to gain its power in the folklore would be to take communion bread from the church and you would feed it to your familiar spirit as blasphemy. Or in order to summon the familiar spirit or to summon the devil, you'd walk around the church a certain amount of times while reciting the Lord's Prayer in reverse. So we see the idea of cunning folk both being this uh, beneficent individual, but also capable of cursing. But they were valued in their community. They were. They were valued. People did rely on them, especially if they couldn't afford treatment. And so they played quite a pivotal part in the community. I'm finding all the the history really interesting because it sounds like, you know, we're familiar with, uh, you know, the again, popular culture and they talk about the witch trials, but they don't really go into a lot of detail. So it's really Mm. interesting. But what I'm interested now is you talked in our initial chat about witchcraft, practicing witchcraft being a growing movement. Mm. And I'm interested to know... And I know you're not going to be able to answer to the actual number, but, you know, what sort of following does this have? You know, what sort of numbers, what sort of, I mean, do you get contact from people around the country sort of saying, you know, I do this, I do this? You know, is it is it that sort of linked in terms of community? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I don't know the numbers for sure, but it is growing worldwide. We have so many pagan and witchcraft retreats across either UK, across America, across Europe, across Asia. There are so many people that are looking to witchcraft to see the power and the beauty that resides there. And I, I do. I find it so wonderful when people contact me and they talk about things that they grew up with that their grandmother or the grandfather told them when they were kidding. Like, oh, my God, I didn't realize this, this was part of witchcraft or this was, this was magical in some sense. Um, and there'll be people across America who will reach out to me. So I talk a lot at festivals and in workshops, I'll give lessons to people. And it's beautiful to see so many people coming together to celebrate and to be diverse. A lot of people like to, so there's different paths of witchcraft. Some people are more pagan. In my folk witchcraft, I do assimilate a lot of the Christian and um, old animistic traditions in my craft, which people like to talk to me about as well, especially if they're coming from Christianity, if they're coming from a very strict reform, they ask, why would you worship God? Why would you use Christian practices in your magic? But it, there's a nuance to it. So in my idea, I do use saints in my magic because that was the dominant belief at the time. And it's part of my cultural lineage. And there are Christian charms that you can filter. And when I, I bring this up, because witchcraft is a heavily evolving craft and people are creating their past each and every day by looking to the past and fashion it and evolving it to fit them. So they'll take these Christianized ideas from the cunning folk or the folklore that surrounds witches, like the Sabbath folklore or the folklore of them act out curses, combine them together and to forge a tradition out of this. A lot of the traditional witchcraft is based in that, to be fair. But no, there's so many different ways. And the, the idea that I really want to emphasize onto this is that it is so beautiful and diverse. People accept you for who you are. They don't look at you and think, oh my God, you had an f- experience with a fairy? God, you must be raving mad. You know, they don't they don't expect you to be sectioned. There's there's a lack of um, there's non non-judgment attitude there. And that's what I find beautiful. And I think the more people 
embrace not necessarily witchcraft but just a more open-minded senseness to it seeing the magic in the world and seeing that nature is not just a commodity that we can use for our own expense but seeing it as alive it does foster a deeper respect for a planet that is in jeopardy so one of the things i do like to talk to people about i've had quite a few people reach out to me in hereford actually because i talk a lot about the welsh marches hereford is included in that and at the moment um to be a witch you have to uh, to be a witch is to be political so a lot of people that join witchcraft, their identity is political because unfortunately we are persecuted. LGBTQI people are persecuted. Women are persecuted. People of color are persecuted. People with disabilities are persecuted and they have to form these groups together so we can celebrate. As someone who is openly gay and queer and a witch, I do. I, even today actually I received a hate comment on one of my posts telling me to go die. So it's still prevalent. But when people come together in these witchcraft practices, there is that sense of empowerment that we are all beautiful. We are all unique and we can come together to create an alliance together. And in that way, not just for ourselves, but for the wider world, you'll find a lot of witches are very much eco-based. They're uh, pro protesting for these eco spaces to remain green. So in Hereford, going back to my main point, uh, I've had quite a few people reach out to me because the why, the river why there is dying. It's so heavily polluted that if we don't do something now, we are going to lose it. We're going to lose its properties. It's so damaged. Even the River Seven, my my goddess who resides in that river, is just as polluted. And you'll see these people gather together in these communities and share the stories that they are related to these rivers, to the landscape, creating big statues. In fact, I, I encourage anyone who's listening to this, go look to save the River Wye. You'll see people bringing up these big goddesses of the River Wye, the, the goddess Wye herself, and educating people about the river, about the folklore about them. Because the idea about folklore is that these are not just whimsical tales or, you know, fabricated ideas or stories of giants and dragons. They bridge the gap with us together they bring us together as a community to celebrate our identity celebrate our relation with each other and with the earth and to forge something that's just so much more beautiful and more deeper and they link so much to our heritage and to our land they're so inseparable and that's another thing i touched upon as well a lot of people reach out to me in terms of ancestry so there are people who identify as living upon stolen land or land that doesn't necessarily belong to them i know a lot of people in america struggle with this and i really do empathize especially with the indigenous nations over there and the history of colonization and so some people feel guilty of being on that land and they can't work with it and so they'll look to their ancestry and they'll find that their ancestors moved over from islands like this or in germany and they'll want to look into the german strand of things the welsh side of things the scottish and in that sense i help them i help okay look into these and I obviously give that with precaution because these are lived traditions. Some of these traditions are still alive today and we have to have respect for the people who practice them on native soil. But in that sense, we are connecting people with witchcraft and paganism from across the world as part of an interconnected web, that web that exists within the magic of nature and within the magic of communication. And the magic of that exists within word. So in my in my opinion, the modern day spellcasting is just as inherent within the internet within online communication if i talk to someone about that that's magic i could spread the word of, of shropshire about montgomeryshire and the rest of the welsh marches to people and have them come and look into the, the magic here and the cunning folk and the witches and it's just beautiful it really is is this is something that's obviously it's not just um a passion it's a way of life for you absolutely how has being a practicing folk witch changed your life and worldview? I mean, you've just given us a, us a snapshot there, but tell us how it has changed your life. Oh, so much. I, I, I people call me a little bit boring to be fair. So I remember in my old, in my youth, I say youth, I'm, I'm 25, well, 25 in a couple of days. But when I was 18, I was going out partying and doing all things that, you know, young 
young people do. <laughs> but these days, I am always... You're still, my... you're still very young. Oh, I don't feel it, honestly. I've been pole dancing for many years. I got a damaged back. Oh. I wake up and I'm like, oh, God, I'm alive again. All oh, the pain. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it has. It's re-enchanted my life. It's given such a deeper purpose to my life. And I'm always finding myself in books these days. I'm always reading People call me a bookworm, but I love it. I love it. I escape into the world of magic and I love reading about things that happened before and ha- things are happening now. And it's given me a greater sense of community, not just with the world around us, but with spirits around me and how I can help leave my mark on the world in a, in a positive manner. So I call myself a witch, but I am very much in the environment. In when I became a witch, I made a pledge to Havlin and to other deities or spirits who I work with to help in any way possible. And I think we can learn morals with that as in itself, you know, help the planet pick up litter, recycle. I actively grow trees. So one of my trees I actually adore from my childhood growing up in Montgomeryshire was the conga tree. And not many people know that conga tree is a little bit endangered. It is, it's threatened. The numbers have decreased. And so I will grow these conga trees in my garden, little pots, and I'll go out into the land and I'll plant them with permission from people to grow them so that they're spreading awareness, spreading the trees, spreading oxygen for us, giving new life to these places. I will go to um, all these different places to try and raise awareness for not just witchcraft, but for the environment and how it is so integral to our practice as witches, as pagans. So yeah, it's really given me a good sense of humility towards that which is around me. I think if you're ever in uh, Shrewsbury or the surrounding area again, I'll take a conquer tree. I'll have a conquer tree for my garden. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Are you familiar <laughs> with the Sabrina statue in Shrewsbury? Yes, yes. yes. Well, when you said that, I was like, okay. And I can see the Reekin from uh, my house as well. Yeah, oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, I think there might, you know, there might be a lot of people listening to this, Vicky being one of them, um, who might be interested in sort of dipping their toe in and sort of trying to understand this a bit more. And it sounds like what you've talked about from the history and all the charms and the curses, it sounds so much information. Like, what's your advice for people who want to sort of say, I really like the sound of this, you know, you've used the words magical and enchanting, and I think that appeals to so many people and how you talked about how it's reinvigorated your life. How... How do people get into this? Yeah, really good question, actually. So first and foremost, you do not need an accurate or detailed uh, analysis of the history of witchcraft. You don't need that to do witchcraft because witchcraft is a living practice-based tradition. It's physical. It's nice to have knowledge of maybe the history of the witch trials, but it can be relevant to living traditions. It's nice to have knowledge of it, little bits of it, but you don't need to be an academic expert in it. All you need to do is have an open heart and to be receptive to what's around you. So to learn about witchcraft, it really depends where you want to go. So you can go down the more historical route. So looking at scholars and academics who have detailed work in the witch trials and how folk belief exists. Um, you can look at practicing witches of today who show you different traditions. So if you're interested in like traditional witchcraft I or Wicca, I de- definitely recommend looking at publishers from Wiser or Llewellyn or Moon Books. There's so many different people out there. There's Anathema. Um, people who are folk witches, so Mara Starling, like the person who I was inspired by, look to her. She's absolutely a fabulous woman who teaches about Wales. Bit of a shameless plug, you can look at my social medias. I, I teach a lot about the Welsh marches. Um, there are so many people out there. My partner, who is a practicing Welsh German uh, folk practitioner, so he can teach you about things like that. Um, there's all sorts of different books. So there's Cornish books by Gemma Gary, who focuses on the, the Cornish tradition. Um, Valerie Thomas from the Norfolk tradition. 
Uh, but yeah, uh, there's so many people I could list. I I, I couldn't name them all possible because I'd be here all day. But if you go to places like Waterstones, you'll find witchcraft books in there. Although I do want to put out that some books in there do give misinformation. So the one thing I will say is avoid certain books that have an emphasis on biological cishet nature of witchcraft. And what I mean by that, there's certain books up there, I won't name names, I don't like to slander, is that some books will propose that witchcraft is inherently to do with womb magic. Now, it's in one way that is beautiful. I think it's beautiful to encourage womb magic and to celebrate femininity. But when they talk about that and they start to discourage people who are, are trans or even men saying that oh, men can't practice witchcraft it is highly exclusionary and you know witchcraft is inclusive it is heavily inclusive and the way to be inclusive you don't step on other communities you don't step on other people to raise yourself we do it together you know what i mean so when you look at books really look about what you're going about as well um it depends why you want to go down traditional witchcraft or not you can go down traditional witchcraft so a good book i read on traditional is Keldon or Bezer and Stang, that's another book title I know of. Um, all different people out there. There's Wicca, if you're interested in Wicca. Uh, you can look to the history there with Dorian Valiente. She's an absolute icon. <laughs> and she was uh, related to Gerald Gardner, who is the father of witchcraft. He is the one, basically, who in, the, I think it's the 1950s, brought about witchcraft, to be fair. He modernised it to know to bring about what it is into the popular mind. Um, and then when you look to folk magic, like I said, you can go to the Llewellyn books. But when you want to look into folk magical practices, look to your folklore of your home and your own backyard and your ancestry so things that might not be witchcraft or if you're doing research don't just type in witchcraft of say Shropshire or of Essex or Birmingham you know look at what was taught to you as a kid look to your aunties your uncles and find out what their superstitions were a lot of witchcraft does revolve around superstition like you don't start certain things on a day so in Shropshire in by folklore you're not supposed to start things on a Friday because it's seen as bad luck so I will do that in my practice um look to animals look to the plant life around you get go out and experience nature go and embrace yourself with nature dig your feet in the soil ground yourself and just listen you can meditate you can just be aware practice mindfulness and you'll hear the set these whispers of wisdom come to you and you'll sometimes you'll have these spiritual experiences that will communicate with you so you know if you walk past liminal places such as uh, crossroads, graveyards, the edge of the threshold of a woodland, you'll find that there is this, oh my God, something's here. We can also, you can also look to your customs of seasonal celebrations. So what do they do during the harvest? So in the Welsh tradition and the Shropshire tradition, we have what's known as the Cassig Vedi, the spirit of the harvest in the shape of a horse. So when the farmers used to go out and they'd harvest the crop, they would leave last strand of corn, and this was known as the mare, and they would proclaim, I have the mare, I have the mare, and they would braid it into a corn dolly and bring it home and there the spirit of the harvest as a horse would, would reside within that corn dolly to the next plough and that was seen as granting prosperity on the house you can look to cooking traditional clothing what clothing was worn why was it worn what colors are associated with it what correspondences do plants have even animals animals i find really interesting look to the folklore surrounding your animal superstitions in Shropshire, we have a divination to do with ladybirds. So people pick up the ladybirds and they'd be like, ladybird, ladybird, fly away, flee. Tell me which way my love is to be. And they would throw it in the air and watch where it would go. And that would be the direction where your love would be. Um, the cricket, for example, was seen to be the guise of the household spirit or the familiar spirit, which is um, what we call in my tradition, the bugan. Or it's also known as Bubach or um, Bugaboo. And this was seen as the household fairy who would help people back in the day clean the house and punish them if they were lazy by playing mischievous pranks on them. And so even doing that, just seeing everything as in bed with a spirit, saying hello to your house, saying goodnight to your house, just 
yeah just being with yourself that's the best way I can encourage people to go out and explore witchcraft and just practice practice makes perfect and one of the things I, I if you want to practice the more operative forms of magic protection everyone needs a bit of protection in this life I mean the world is difficult enough as it is with you know the financial crisis and world war three on our doorstep and I think we've got to do a little bit of protection and just reading into it reading what people used as protection by going through these books at waterstones or traditional witchcraft uh, shops there's just so many different revenues what we'll do is we'll um we'll get a list of the the best of from you and we'll put Absolutely. it on our yeah. blog post and we'll also signpost all your social media oh, and you. your <laughs> links as well because you know like katie said your your accounts are just fascinating um and there's nothing you can't do so we'd like to spread the word of oh, how wonderful Brett is I will um, say as well just quickly that if people want to come and want to experience it in a community that there are loads of um festivals and talks going across the UK where people do gather together to listen to the history of witchcraft so we have Witchfest that happens in the Midlands or it can happen up north I think that there's the witchcraft uh, pagan federation so that happens up north in Scotland they happen it happens all over the country there's um I do a shameless plug again. There's the uh, Festival for Pagans and Witches, which is a massive growing festival. It's, it's been going for about four years now. I've gone to about three years of it so far. And that's when it's, it is growing. It's in the thousands. I mean, back in May, we had news reporters coming. Um, I gave an interview to a Japanese filming crew and people come together and there's just so many different practices depending whether you're you know you want to practice heathenry if you're on the Norse pagan kind of side of things or if you're on green witchcraft or the Hellenistic style of things like you know Greek and Roman pantheons or if you're into folk witchcraft all these people come together and there are workshops there that you can book onto to learn you can come to the marquee so my coven which focuses on the more Welsh stream things are running workshops and there's uh dancing there's Morris dancers there's um all Viking reenactments and there's nighttime rituals. It's just a beautiful place to be. And that's happening this year again on September the, it's the weekend. So it's September the 16th or 17th or 15th, 16th. It's a Saturday and Sunday it is. But yeah, things like that, getting involved in that and speaking to people, that's another way to learn as well. That's where I'm going in September. Oh, it's actually, oh my God, you have to come over and say hello to me. Oh, I'm <laughs> going now. Free tea, actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a, um, a Tassimancy workshop. So if you come on over, I'll give you a free cup of tea. Come and say hello. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Um, oh, wonderful. Right. Before we close, we offer all our guests the opportunity to have a final sip. So this is your chance to say whatever message you would like to give to our listeners. It can be uh, totally related to what we're talking about. Predominantly, you know, well, we encourage that. But if there's anything else you want to tell our listeners about you, about anything that's on your mind, then now is the time. So, Brett, what's your final step? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening to this. And thank you to both of you as well for giving me the opportunity to talk about my practice. My final take is, is that magic exists everywhere and it can be accessed by anyone of any ability, any age. And that when we link ourselves to magic, we find that our world can be re-inspired and re-enchanted and that you can take power in it. In this world and day and age, there is so much anger and hatred going on. And I find it funny, actually, that I think it was even yesterday or today that marks the celebration of the Stonewall riots. And this just relates to what I was saying, is that witchcraft doesn't have to be feared. It doesn't have to be this stigmatised thing that, oh, you're going to go to hell for doing this. It is something to reclaim your personal sovereignty, to empower yourself in a world that seeks to crush you and also just another shameless plug um 
please do follow me. I am always open for people to ask me questions. I'm also open for pole dance lessons as well, but that's another topic as well. <laughs> I'm hoping to write a book about this. I am in the process of doing so. So I hope to get that out for people and to hope inspire others. And I generally hope that this uh, this podcast has um, inspired you to look to your own backyard and see what magic resides there and see what knowledge you can find out. And to also uh, please listen to the other podcast episodes from Strong Team because they're absolutely fabulous. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, don't know what to say after that. That was really lovely. <laughs> Shucks. Um, we'd love to have you back on, obviously, after the books come out and you're kind of learning more about your journey up to that point as well, because I imagine oh, you. it's just going to soar for you now. Um, you're spreading the good word. Oh, thank and you. You've already got two fans here. So, <laughs> yeah brilliant oh thank you so much no thank you and thank you listeners for joining us for this amazing episode if you like what you have heard then you can visit our supporters page where you can buy us a tea a coffee not ba- not banana tea i don't oh, know see, banana, I tea, no. <laughs> banana tea so i'm quite happy for oh, that buy some mugwort tea mugwort tea let me know what your experiences are <laughs> Ooh, it reminds me when you say mugwort it reminds me of hogwart um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> oh, so yeah, if you like me here, come and support us. As Brett says, check out our back catalogue. We have tons of episodes. And that's about it. Anything else, Katie? No, no, that's everything. Uh, you can find us on all major podcasting platforms. All you have to do is go to your platform of choice and type in strong tea chat all lowercase. That's it from us. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. (laughs) (laughs) Never gets old, that, does it? Never gets old. Never gets old. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.